Okay, why don't we stand and read the Word of God. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. <clears throat> and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Thank you. I'm going to start this morning with a few quotes from my different commentaries. Paul Spilsbury, a professor at Regent College, said this. Chapter 20 is possibly the most difficult in all of the letter. Later on, he says, it is perhaps only of small comfort to know that centuries of scholarship and interpretation have failed to arrive at any solid consensus about the meaning of this short passage. Leon Morris, in his commentary, said, there have been endless disputes, some of them very bitter, over the way to understand this chapter. I start with these quotes just to simply say that whatever we have come to believe about these verses, and what they've said to us in the past, we have to admit that we can't be too dogmatic about this. We can't be too dogmatic. If it's caused disputes over centuries and professors at colleges are saying these are very difficult to understand, we have to admit that this is the case when we come to these, uh, this chapter. At the same time, my difficulty is, as your pastor, we teach expositionally. 
and book by book, which means I don't get to pick and choose the verses that I am comfortable with and are not comfortable with and avoid topics that are potentially divisive and deep to your heart in terms of understanding. I can't run and hide from that reality just because uh, of the way we do things around here. So I do come to you this morning with um, humility and a spirit of gentleness, knowing that what I'm about to preach, not all of you will potentially agree. However, I do have to land somewhere, and I have to stand for something. Okay, and so you probably are going to guess where I stand based on how I've preached the previous 19 chapters. But it's really the chronology or the sequence of events that sparks the debate. So let me review the, the sequence so you understand what's up, for, what's up for debate. We'll start with chapter 19 because that was last week's message. So in chapter 19, Jesus uh, returns on a white horse. He comes to judge the nations, the beast, and the false prophet. The one missing, however, is the dragon, who's Satan, who shows up in chapter 20. So now John's going to deal with the dragon and where he fits into this piece of judgment. In chapter 20, it begins with the dragon, Satan, seized and thrown into a bottomless pit that is sealed shut for a thousand years. And in the Christian circles, we have come to believe that, or we've titled that the millennium. During Satan's imprisonment, the souls of those who had been martyred for their faith, as well as those who have been loyal to Christ in general, uh, came to life and reigned with him, with Jesus, for a thousand years. This is described as the first resurrection in which the second death has no power. At the end of the thousand years, Satan is released from prison, where he gathers an army for one final battle against God's people. Satan and his army are defeated as fire consumes them from heaven. Satan is then judged and thrown into the lake of fire for eternity, joining the beast and the false prophet from chapter 19. And the unbelieving world is also judged at the great white throne for their rebellion against God, who had ultimately aligned themselves with the devil. And then they are thrown into the lake of fire to accompany the false prophet, the beast, and Satan. Okay, that's the whole chapter in summary. Hopefully that's clearer than just at first read. Three main positions exist within Christianity as how to interpret these events. If you would like this PowerPoint, I'll text me and I'll email it to you. If you'd like to discuss these things in person, we'll go for coffee and I'll describe these things to you in greater detail of what these are. And I could literally do an hour sermon in each position and so we're, I'm going to do it in like 45 seconds, okay? Maybe a bit longer, <laughs> maybe a couple minutes. In the first position, um, it's the premillennialism. So you see the first coming of Christ on the very far left, uh, with uh, uh, you know 2,000 years ago. The, uh, from the first coming to the second coming is called the Church Age. So if you take the sequence of events in Revelation literally, you're going to find Satan bound at the second coming of Christ. Christ establishing, establishing his kingdom for a thousand years. Satan then released at the end of the thousand years where a great battle occurs. And then God brings in a new heavens and new earth, which is chapters 21 and 22. So really, in Revelation then, the time between chapter 20 and 21 is a thousand years in terms of waiting for it in history. That's the premillennialism view. That is 
largely embraced in the North American community. I would say if you listen to 1140 radio and things like that, and even majority of Christians that I've been around my whole life in the Christian circles, the premillennial view is the predominant view in, in, in our circles. The postmillennial view just does the same thing with the first coming in the church age. Satan is bound, and then the thousand years comes, and really the, um, Jesus comes at the end of the thousand years. So the pre and post refers to the timing of Jesus coming. So you'll notice, actually, I'll go back. In the premillennial, Jesus in the second coming comes before the thousand years, so pre-1000, the pre-coming of Jesus. In the second coming of the post-millennium, he comes after the thousand years, hence the word post-millennial, post-millennialism. Uh, and then the final view is the amillennial view. The first coming, of course, is when Satan actually is bound. Satan is actually bound at the first coming of Christ. The church age, the thousand years, is the church age that we're living in now. Satan will be released at the end of the thousand year church age, right before Jesus comes back, and we go, immediately go into a new creation and a new, and a new heaven and earth. In the amillennial view, the thousand years is symbolic. There's no literal timeline. It's symbolic of uh, the church age, the first coming of Christ with Jesus' ministry to when he returns. I'm going to suggest to you this morning, with humility, that um, while I don't agree with every aspect of the amillennial view, there's some weaknesses potentially in understanding this, that I would interpret it as being symbolic. So right now, we are currently in the thousand year reign with Satan bound. But I'm going to substantiate that as I go through uh, the sermon this morning. So why would I go with the symbolic view when the majority of like, you know, Christians hold to the premillennial view? Well, first of all, go back to basics. Sermon number one. We are in an apocalyptic book. <coughs> Chapter 1, verse 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation in Greek means apocalypsis. So apocalyptic language tells you the genre. Now why that's important is, when you go to chapters or any Christian bookstore, and you go to the fiction section, when you read a book from the fiction section with all the characters and all the events and all the things written in there, as a reader, you understand that none of this is true. However, you, could, you might see truths in them in terms of how life plays out. Like, you might see love stories, jealousy, anger, you know, things like that. Like, you know, uh, tight friendships, you know, protection. And so you see the, you kind of relate to that in modern day experience. But you know that none of the events are true or the characters are true. If you go to the nonfiction section under autobiographies, and you find an author who was part of the Vietnam War, and you buy the book of this soldier who's fought in the war, when you read the book, you take everything as fact. Everything is literal. And you trust him as the source or her as being the, like whatever's there is legitimate and it's to be interpreted literally. Genre dictates the way you approach a book. Apocalyptic language was, if you look at the history of all the apocalyptic languages that exist and who they were written to, none of them were to be interpreted literally. 
They were all using uh, beastly-like figures and animal-type kingdoms to describe political situations and religious situations of their day and were used to encourage the people who were suffering under these systems to keep going and press on for God. And if you, you can do some research and you can actually find all the apocalyptic genres that exist. And so when he says the revelation of Jesus Christ, he's already telling you, I want you to look for the spiritual truths in here, knowing that everything I'm going to write, you have to wade through what I'm writing here. Now, number, what's key about that is the use of numbers in apocalyptic language. And we've seen so far that numbers are to be used symbolically, haven't we? Do you remember in chapter 1, verse 4, God is mentioned, Jesus is mentioned, and then it says that the seven spirits of God are there. Well, when you go to Zechariah and you go to Isaiah, you see the sevenfold manifestation of the Spirit. So what John is saying is, go back to Old Testament, this is a reference to the Holy Spirit identified in seven spirits. When you go to Jesus, in chapter 5, verse 6, he has seven eyes and seven horns. It's a symbol of completion, a symbol of perfection, that Jesus is all-seeing and all-powerful. Horns are a symbol of authority and power. But none of us expect, when we meet Jesus, to have seven eyes, do we? Or seven horns. If you do, I, I would encourage you to think differently about Christ. When we start mixing numbers, so the seven spirits is, is, is metaphorical, seven eyes is metaphorical, but then we say 1,000 is literal, that's when we can get into trouble with interpretation because we're starting to mix what we think is real and, and false. But we can see John's use of numbers all the way through have a, a spiritual symbolism behind them. So what's the symbolic use of 1,000? Well, a thousand is the ten cubed. Ten times ten times ten. Ten in the Old Testament is a number of completion or fullness. The Ten Commandments, the complete law. So ten times ten times ten is to say is a thousand is saying it's a really large number that represents fullness, completion in God's eyes. And a thousand is often used to describe different aspects of God's character to the fullness, to its completion. When we go to these two texts, look at how these are literally used, or symbolically used. Psalm 50, verse 10. For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. What is he saying? God is saying, I am completely sovereign over creation, and everything's under my dominion. I mean, I'm just being cheeky here, but God, do you not own every cattle on a thousand and two hills? What about 2,000 hills in the world? Are you not owner, do you not own those ones? And the Old Testament authors or readers go, of course I know what that means. It means that God is like, everything's under his control. A thousand is like just, it's just like an innumerable number, right, of completion. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is faithful, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand's generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. Again, what's he saying? God is completely and immeasurably faithful and loving. No one would ever suggest that God is, is not faithful beyond the thousandth generation. <laughs> Again, he's just, he's just trying to describe the immeasurable nature of God's character and the fullness and completion of his character. 
So again, when John's using Old Testament imagery all through the Revelation, he's wanting the readers to go, look at how I used numbers in the past and apply them to the New Testament text in Revelation. So Satan bound for a thousand years and us reigning with Christ for a thousand years is John's way of saying this is a complete and full time frame as determined by God. A complete and full time frame determined by the Lord. Second reason why I'd say the thousand years is to be interpreted symbolic. There's no place in scripture anywhere in the New Testament that speaks of Jesus reigning for a thousand years. No New Testament scripture which is beyond Revelation which is to be interpreted literally unless you see parables and stuff and then you know how to interpret those. But none of them speak of it. The four Gospels, Jesus says nothing. And yet he speaks about the end and his coming on many occasions. Paul in First and Second Thessalonians and on chapters about the end of time speaks no mention of a thousand years. Corinthians, in which there's another talk about resurrection and about the end of times, there's no mention of a thousand years. But for me, the most, one of the most important texts is Second Peter. Second Peter says this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements destroyed by fire, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Notice the timing. He says, when Jesus comes back, the earth will be burned up, and the next scene, new heavens and new earth. Immediate. Righteousness will dwell there. Nothing else. Right? But if you go, to the, if you go back to here, in this view, according to Second Peter, at the second coming, new, the new creation occurs right then. Right then. But according to this view, we have to wait a thousand years for new creation. Not only that, when Satan's released, righteousness is no longer only part of the thousand years anymore. Unrighteousness is in the kingdom. But he says righteousness will dwell there in 2 Peter. So 2 Peter makes it clear that on the timing. And so there's no mention of a thousand year reign anywhere except for Revelation. The third reason I would suggest a symbolic view is found within our text. In verses 1 through 3, we see the section of the binding and releasing of Satan with a key and a chain. Well, again, you're not going to take Satan, a spirit, and shackle him with a literal key and a literal chain. It doesn't work that way. It's incongruent. Again, it's dangerous to mix metaphors to say, well, we understand the chain and the key to be um, um, symbolic, but not a thousand years. We get mixing stuff up, gets kind of confusing, and hence the huge amounts of debates we have in Christianity as to what this means. In sections four through six, verses four through six, this is about us reigning with Christ for a thousand years. John never actually says that the thousand years takes place on earth. He never says that. In fact, if anything, it points to heaven. In verse 4, he talks about thrones being there and souls. Well, the word throne is used 47 times in Revelation. All with the exception of three times is it referred to as heaven. 
Three of the thrones are on earth, but the remainder are in heaven. And this is really just another thing to think about as we approach this text. So I spend a lot of time saying what I believe it not to be. (laughs) What is it saying? What is it saying? Well, let's speak about the, the first section, about this idea of Satan being bound, then released, and then eventually defeated in verse 10 forward. What, what's this about? Your first lesson is this. Although Satan's evil, evil's influence can be definitely felt in this world, his power is limited and under God's authority. So although Satan's evil influence can definitely be felt, found or felt in this world, his power is limited and it's under God's timing and under authority. The binding of Satan, the way I understand it, is something that we're experiencing now. We're living in a period where Satan is being restrained. And it began with the coming of Jesus. Do you remember in Luke chapter 10, in verse 17, there's the mission of the 72. I'll see if I have it here. The mission of the 72. When they come back after having an incredible ministry of healing and um, freeing people from the devil, from demoniac possession, the 72 come back rejoicing and say, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Satan's got an influence in this world, but with us in ministry here, he is, he is being defeated. He's being bound. He's being restrained. In Matthew 16 and 18, um, Jesus is talking to Peter about his future leadership in the church. He says, I tell you that you, are, you, Peter, are on this rock and I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. They will not overcome it. The gospel is going to go forward. So again, Satan's in this world, but he cannot prevail against our gospel. But my favorite is in Mark chapter 3 and verse 27. In Mark 3, 27. Jesus has been going through the, uh, the uh, Galilee cleaning house in terms of exorcisms. And the Pharisees come and accuse him of being demon-possessed. And then Jesus says this, Well, if I'm demon-possessed, if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Those of you who love Greek and are Greek nerds and love word studies, tying him up is the same Greek word for bound in Revelation chapter 20. Same Greek word. Jesus says saying this, I'm bounding Satan now in this ministry. I'm binding him. He cannot fight against us. And I'm giving you authority to go after the, the people who are influenced and under his control and let's go bind this sucker. The gates of hell will not prevail against my gospel. But at the same time, John says he will be released. So what does that mean? He's saying this, at some point in the future, at the end of the church age, at the end of the church age, before I come, all shackles are off. There's going to be a time coming when he's allowed to go full tilt in this world. A short time of intensified pressure. 
And then as according to the, the battle scene we see, and then his throwing in the lake of fire, his eventual destruction. And so what he's saying here is that Satan's influence is ultimately under God's timing and under, under his control. He's it's under his control. He's got a brutal presence in this world, but at the same time, the Lord knows what's happening, and he's bound him. He's not having victory everywhere, but there will come a time when, when God will understand that the world is basically going to say, probably, with enough of you, God, and at that time, God will say, okay, Let's allow him to go full tilt, and then he will come back and take him out. Do we have any New Testament evidence of this type of language of binding, restraining, releasing, and his, de his, his de demise? Do we have any New Testament evidence of this to support this? Well, we do in 2 Thessalonians. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Don't you remember that I was with you? I used to tell you these things. And you know what restrains him now, so that in his times he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he now, who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. So Paul's saying this, that the, the Thessalonians are, are wondering about the return of Jesus because many people have died before his coming back and they think, well, if I've died and I haven't seen Jesus come back, am I stuck in the grave? Do I miss glory? And there's a lot of tension in the Thessalonian church because the congregation believes that those who have died are going to miss the chance for eternity. So Paul comes back with all these incredible teachings to say, not only are you not missed, you're prioritized. You go first to be with God. And then those who are alive are go, go next. But then they also want to know, well, when is this going to happen? And he says, two things have to happen. There's going to be a giant worldwide apostasy, a rebellion against God, bigger than we've ever seen before. And number two, a man of lawlessness is going to be revealed. So in the timing of Jesus' coming, you have to watch for these two things before he actually returns. But then he says this, but you know right now what's restraining him from coming now. There's a restrainer, and it's going to be revealed. Now there's lots of debate as to the Christian community is who's restraining Satan, who's influencing the, the, the man of lawlessness. Is it, is it Michael the angel? Is it the church? It doesn't matter. Whoever is restraining Satan is on God's team. But we see this idea of Satan... Although he's prevalent in this world, he's limited, but God's going to take his hands off and say, go for it. And then he's going to come back and make everything new. So what else can we learn from this then? Lesson number two. As followers of Christ, we are living in an age of opportunity for the sharing of the gospel. <laughs> right? If Satan is bound right now, which is hard to believe, like when we look at the world and the state it's in, but he is bound. If, and, and, but one day he won't be. If that's the case, then we're in a golden age. It's like prime time for sharing your faith about Christ because his influence is not as pervasive as it's going to be. And this is exciting for us, as, again, as we, as we think about our church and our desire to church plant and our, our heart for the lost and our prayer in the streets ministry. Like we are trying to take every opportunity for the sharing of the gospel now. Knowing that we do have an extra measure of freedom 
that may not be there in the future. So it's just something to think about. Satan is bound and he's hindered and he's restrained. We need to seize the opportunity. What else can we learn? As followers of Jesus, we can take comfort in whatever and knowing that whatever hardships we face in life, upon our death, we reign with Christ. We can take comfort in knowing whatever hardships we face in life, upon our death, we reign with Christ. This is section 4 through 6. Verses 4 through 6. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and not receive the mark on their forehead. And on their hand, and on their, on their hand, uh, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed is and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection over the, these that the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Remember who he's writing to. It starts in the first century. What's happened in Rome? We saw it in the seven churches already. People have been martyred for their faith. And those who just sort of died of natural causes had it tough under the Roman system. People have already been martyred. Already gone through, have already died in the Lord. In Romans first century. And he's saying this, like... um, when they when they've died, he's the, the next vision is I saw souls in heaven who are reigning with Christ. Kind of like the thief on the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. I'm in glory right now in the church age. Before the second coming of Jesus. I'm with the Lord. Paul even says it too. Your citizenship is in heaven, even though you're living on earth. Paul sees you as being already with God, with Christ in those ways. So again, the, the loved ones that we've lost, we, the Revelation speaking to them, saying there's comfort in knowing that they're reigning with the Lord right now in this church age, in this period. Like they're with Him, they're alive. They've experienced, and my understanding is they've actually experienced the first resurrection already because they're already with the Lord. The body will come later. This is important because John wants to provide one word of comfort, one final word of comfort to those who already had been or were about to be persecuted more in the future for their devotion to Christ. And he wants to provide them comfort to keep going that they, can, although they already reign with Christ rather than offer their allegiance to the emperor. If I was to put one sentence to the whole thing, he's saying this, God has not forgotten his own, no matter what you've gone through or are about to go through. God has not forgotten you. Whatever goes on, stay allegiant, persevere, because you are reigning now with Him, and you will reign in the future with Him. Lesson number four. There will be a final day of reckoning for all those who rejected God. We can, I'm not going to read verses 7 to uh, 15, but he really divides it into two camps, doesn't he? He talks about this spiritual, the spiritual realm that gets judged. He talks about, in verse 10, the devil who was deceived was thrown into the lake of fire, where the beast and the false prophets also were, and he'll be tormented for, night, for uh, today and night forever and ever. And then he goes on to the human, the human side, the human realm. 
He talks about the great and the small in verse 12, standing before the throne and books were opened, in which they were judged according to their deeds. And then it says in, uh, that they were thrown into the lake of fire as well. So we have this final day of reckoning in the spiritual realm and in the human realm of those accountable to God for their deeds on judgment day. Again, another word of comfort to a suffering Christian in Roman century to go, God is going to vindicate us and the book opened above the book of life, we're in it. So we get to reign with Christ. The devil and his agents and the, and the people rebelling against God, when those books are opened, it's going to be a sad day. That roll call before God of all their deeds is going to be one horrific moment to say, you have, you have not received my, my, my son and relied on the blood of what he did on the cross to forgive you and redeem you. You live for yourself, not for the Lord. So comforting words for those who are persevering under hardship, but also a sense of justice. Those of you who like justice, a sense of justice that God is going to judge one day. And this seems like a, a bookstore, right? Of course, not literal. I don't actually believe God's going to open an actual physical book with your name, or not, well, not the believer's name, but the unbeliever's name going through everything. He's like he's, he's omniscient. He's, gonna, he's not going to forget. He doesn't need a record book to make it clear. He'll just relay all the works to those people and say, you, 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 know, you disobeyed me in this and you didn't love me in this and I know what you did behind closed doors here and there and the other thing. The key here in this whole scene in the great white throne is to point to God's vindication of the righteous and God's justice over those who rebelled against him. One final lesson, and this is not why John, um, it's not sort of highlighted per se in the text, but it's pervasive through it. There's way more going on in the supernatural world that is deeply impacting us than we immediately see or realize. This whole scene is occurring without anybody on earth really understanding what's going on. Satan being bound by God now we don't know like how that looks exactly. Um, you know, this sort of spiritual warfare going on with Satan trying to like uh, persecute uh, believers and deceive the nations and so on and so forth. When you read the whole chapter thing on Job, Job never knew, even at the end of his life, that all the source of his pain and troubles was because the devil did it. And God allowed it as a test. Job never knew. He was never told. Think about Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 6. He's up against the king of Aram and it looks terrible for Israel. And then in the morning he goes out and Elisha opens his eyes and sees the hills full of horses and chariots of angels of fire. And the, angel, and the, the Aramean army didn't see him, but Elisha saw them. And it was God's way of saying, we've got this battle. Think of Ephesians 6. We quote it all the time. If you're a Sunday school teacher, you've, one of your favorite things to do with kids is to give them the armor of God lesson and put on the armor of God. Ephesians 6, Paul says, our, spirit, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual powers and principalities of, of, this, of the world. This is why we went into prayer ministry for the town of Okotoks. 
when we watched that video in September of the spiritual transformations, how were all the strongholds broken of, of uh, um, the cartel in Colombia, the murder rates in the streets, the uh, amount of men that were like, basically abandoned their, their families and were sleeping on the ditches because they were drunk, the amount of jails that were full, uh, the uh, Scientology you know, and uh, sort of New Age uh, places in California and all the gang stuff, how was every single one of those things broken by a small band of believers faithfully and steadily praying together and God broke down the barriers and removed cartels from Colombia, freed the jails from prisoners through the power of His grace and gospel. There's way more going on in the supernatural world that is deeply impacting us than we immediately see or realize. Amen.